all. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking about education and labor at the university level with Dr. Mary Beth Brophy, a member of the Executive Committee for Contingent and Part-Time Faculty Forum with the Modern Languages Association. But before we get into that, how are you doing today, Mary Beth? Uh, I'm doing really good. I'm looking forward to talking about contingency issues today. So let's get into that a little bit, because I think for a lot of folks, they look at university employment, especially as a professor, as something where you're tenured, where you're trying to publish and do research, and you've pretty much got a stable full-time job. But that's not the picture of employment we're seeing nowadays. Right. That's correct. And I think, you know, once upon a time, that was absolutely the way things were. But for now, what we actually have is we have a move away from tenure, and actually even a move away from full-time employment. So um, I think we're up to about 73% of um, university faculty are what's called off the tenure track. Um, and that can mean a whole lot of different things. It can mean someone who has a multi-year contract but just doesn't have any protections beyond that contract. Or it can mean someone like me, who is actually what we call a just-in-time faculty member. We're hired by the course, and we're part-time, so we don't get any benefits. Um, and then the other thing I want to like sort of make clear is there does seem to be this sense that uh, higher ed teachers are highly paid, that we teach a few classes and we get like great benefits. And um, and I think it's important that people understand that that's not really the case. That in fact, um, one piece of, let me make sure that I give you the numbers here correctly. Uh, so there was a study that was done recently that showed that um, the average starting salary for a newly minted bachelor degree holder would be about $50,000. But for a math or writing faculty member who is teaching um, contingently uh, on a 10 course basis, and that's just based on a course by course pay, uh, so that would be sort of like a you know part time person teaching at multiple schools. Those people are making you know between thirty three and thirty four thousand dollars. So we're actually earning oh, wow. less than the students we're training will earn once they have their degrees. And is there any competition that it is being felt by graduate TAs and stuff? Because I know when I was in school, a lot of my discussion labs were led by graduate students, um, graduate students who are pretty much working for their tuition with the university. Are there, is there competition or overlap between graduate TAs and contingent faculty in their teaching assignments? There's a lot of overlap, and we're really starting to see that uh, graduate students and contingent faculty are needs align. And that's largely because when I was in college, um, your TAs worked under a teacher. So they might lead discussion groups. Uh, they might even do some grading, but they weren't teaching courses solo. Uh, what we're seeing a lot more now is that graduate students, uh, once they get to the doctoral program, they have a master's degree. So they have the basic requirement to teach GE classes like math, writing, history, things like that. Um, they are teaching solo, so they're not working with an instructor. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, they're being paid much less. Uh, so they're not even getting the benefits that a, they're not even getting the pay that a contingent faculty member would get. Um, and contingent faculty members aren't getting a lot. Um, so I think it's important. We've started to really think about them as, you know, if you're teaching a class solo, you're a faculty member. You're not a teaching assistant because you're not assisting anyone. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, we really see them as aligned as opposed to in competition. And is this something that cuts across all disciplines? Because obviously with the Modern Language Association, you are most likely dealing with humanities. Um, and there's a big focus 
there's a big focus from policymakers on STEM education, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, are these same contingent conditions applying across all of these disciplines, or are they different kind of school to school, as it were? Um, there can be some school to school, but I think it has more to do with um, uh, general education courses, and that cuts across all disciplines. So, you know, when a student has to take their math requirement, their writing requirement, their science requirement, um, these are all positions that are typically taught by contingent faculty. They're not often taught, and, and there can be some variation. Um, so, while there are certain areas, I mean, obviously, if you're a contingent faculty member and you're teaching in a medical school, you're probably making more. But um, it's it has more to do with the types of courses. So if you're teaching the intro and the foundation courses, and I want to be clear that these are the courses that schools have determined that every student needs to take. So they consider them to be very important. And yet, a lot of times they're taught by contingent faculty members. Also, when students go to a community college, so for example, if they're involved in any sort of free college program um, or they're doing you know, their, their GE courses at community college, as many as half of their faculty will be contingent faculty, and that cuts across the disciplines. And is this something that we see at every level of the the university system? Because you've mentioned uh, community colleges, and I know, like, uh, for when I went to school at USC, there was a lot of prerequisites that I had to take before I could, you know, declare a major and move in uh, or move up in the, in the chain, as it were. Is this something that big universities like Harvard and UCLA with huge endowments are doing as well as smaller community colleges? Yes, it absolutely is. And I think that's another kind of myth that's out there that it's sort of that it's a money issue. Um, it's an allocation of money issue. And the reality is, um, it's not, you know, a lot of times they want to put their money in these really kind of public things. So you'll hear about uh, Harvard absolutely uses contingent faculty. Um, UCLA absolutely uses contingent faculty. Um, you know, every, uh, there are very few schools. You might come across a campus that doesn't use contingent faculty, but that's usually because they're relying on other campuses to kind of make up the difference. Um, mm. So as long as schools are able to make decisions about where to allocate and there's no real penalty to them to sort of save money this way, they're going to put money into, you know, dining hall food and um, sports equipment and things like that. And they're going to take money away from contingent faculty, um, often by moving towards a reliance on part-time faculty. Because if you have two part-time faculty splitting the load of what would otherwise have been a full-time job, you don't have to pay either one of those people um, benefits. Oh, wow. And yep. how does this model of employment affect people's career? Because when you come out of graduate school um, and you're, you're applying for university-level teaching positions, you have at least a master's, if not a PhD. So you've already invested a lot of time and energy in, in just getting the credentials to teach and are hopefully aiming for like lifelong employment. Is that something that the contingent track really allows you to do or allows you to, to pursue in a meaningful way? Um, you know, it does and it doesn't, only within a very short period of time. Um, there is, depending on where someone got their doctoral program, there is a sort of usefulness to teach contingently um, to get some teaching experience. But that rapidly sort of, you know, 
starts to count against the faculty member. The longer you're on the contingent faculty track, the less likely it is that you will be able to convert to a tenure track position. Um, tenure track, they are often looking to hire new graduates. And the percentage that I was given, which really disturbed me because I got my master's degree and then I taught for a while and then I went back and got a doctorate, um, is that after seven years, your chances of converting from a contingent faculty position to a tenure track faculty position are almost non-existent. Something would have to change. You would have to do something, you know, publish an amazing book or, you know, discover something or find some way to change that. Um, and what that means is there's a, a whole group of contingent faculty who have a lot of experience, who've been teaching for a lot of years, who, you know, almost have no real chance of getting out of their contingent positions. And that, I think, is something that really needs to change. And do professors in contingent uh, employment, do they get a lot of support from the universities? Because I know when I had more prestige professors, they had research assistants who were helping them with their books and the university was providing them with resources so that they could publish and do research. Uh, are contingent faculty members just treated like employees or are they seen as the sort of investment that more tenure track professors are, are, are given? Um, it, probably closer to employees, but I do want to be clear. It, it, some schools are better than others. I teach it at three different schools, and each one has things that it invests in its contingent faculty. Um, so it's not so much that they don't invest in us, but they invest in keeping us contingent. They don't invest in the conversion. So there's a lot of kind of investment, and it depends on the school. I mean, some schools do no investment whatsoever. Um, one of the most horrifying things I heard at a contingent, um, you know, at a contingent uh, conference that I went to was someone actually talking, and they were talking about like this was a wonderful thing, that they had managed to lower the cost of their contingent faculty's parking passes, which meant they were continuing to charge contingent faculty for coming to work. Uh, so there's that low end, but then there's this sort of end where they want to, you know, they'll they'll invest in sort of teaching you how to do research and um, invest in workshops. And some of them may even pay for you to get additional education credentials. But if there's no commitment to hiring from within to taking their existing um, contingent faculty and making them tenure track, then these are sort of just, they're almost like helping them kind of feel better about where they are, helping them feel welcome, but not actually changing their status. Okay, that, that sort of makes sense. Now, you mentioned that you're currently teaching at three different schools. I was wondering, what does the, the normal flow of your work here look like? Um, like, if you don't get a course, is it really easy to just hop over to another university and get a course for the next semester? Is it really easy to hop jobs, or are you constantly finding yourself sort of stretched thin? It's not easy at all. And I'll just give you a, a couple of examples. Um, what can happen, particularly in my situation, and I am what's considered to be one of the most precarious, well, the most precarious situation. Um, I can be offered a class, uh, you know, in the middle. Uh, so I can be in the middle of the fall semester. I can be offered a series of classes for the spring semester. And I will allocate that period of time to teach those classes. So I won't accept classes from one of my other possible employers. But what could happen is 
Uh, I think the the closest was I actually had a class canceled three days before the start of the semester. I can't replace that. There's no way for me to replace that. Um, So what you see with contingent faculty in my position is we often have to accept more sort of classes um, than really we would like to because, well, first of all, we need to pay for our own, you know, health care and things like that. But also we kind of almost have to count on the fact that some of these will go away. So, um, you know, in a particular semester, I might make um, I might make less money than the following semester. Um, I might have uh, you know a lot of my classes canceled. I might have none of them canceled, um, and it it also makes a difference. So one of the things I have to do is I have two different schools. One of them pays more than another, um, so I allocate certain days to that school because I know if they offer me a course that um, I want to take that. But if they don't then I've got this sort of space that I could have filled up maybe at one of my other schools. So it's, it's a big, you know, juggling act. And you also never know, um, you know, one, one time, and this is actually in the um, California state system, I was offered a, you know, I was teaching part-time for them, but regularly. Uh, they never canceled classes on me. I was teaching, I was teaching, I was teaching. And I found out the final week of class that I wasn't on the schedule for the final semester, for the next semester. And that was how I found out I didn't have a job. Oh, um, wow. And they never actually said I wouldn't be given any more. Uh, you know, I joke with people that theoretically they could call me at any time, even though I've left the state. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how quickly our jobs can go away. And it's also important that people understand that unlike, um, you know, for example, a computer programmer, a computer programmer who loses a job can go immediately and start applying for work, can get full-time work and start full-time work at any time of the year. Um, We can only start at the starts of the semesters, but beyond that, the really good full-time jobs will often start interviewing six to to 18 months in advance. So, um, you know, if you lose a sort of really stable job as a contingent, what you're going to pick up to replace it is often not going to be as stable. And I wanted to to ask about that specifically when you do like find out that you have no more classes being offered you by a particular university. Uh, is there any kind of severance or consideration? Is there anything to help like soften the blow of having to go six to 18 months without uh, without another class to teach? Uh, no, there isn't. And um, there's a couple of things that relate to this. Um, on a state-by-state state basis, uh, contingent faculty who lose a job may find it easier or harder or impossible to uh, file for unemployment because it's based on this idea like, you know, your employer has to essentially say that they, you won't be employed, you know, in the foreseeable future. And if it's contingent, they often won't say that. The other thing is um, there's no sort of, um, you know, there's there's no unemployment for being underemployed. Um, so you can end up having a semester where you're just teaching like one class. Um, you're not unemployed. So even if you were in a state that allowed you to file for unemployment, but you're not making much money either. Um, and there's just really no offset for that. Yeah, that seems like a really brutal job cycle. Uh, is What's driving the universities to do this? Because I don't feel like... I've seen tuitions going down year over year. Like they're one of those uh, categories of economic measurements that seems to always be outpacing inflation. So what's, in in your opinion, driving universities uh, to adopt this model of employment? 
I think I, there's two elements, but I think the, the simple answer is they do it because they can. Um, right now, there is there are basically enough faculty members out there who do not have full-time work um, that are willing to accept these jobs. And the older the faculty member is or the longer they've been in the business, the harder it is for them to just transition and start a completely new career. Um, so they kind of like, you know, they know that we really don't have as many, you know, options to do things. But the other thing is this shift towards part-time and contingent faculty has been going on for more than 40 years. It started, you know, in the 70s. And so universities have known that this was going on. And yet they're not reducing, for the most part, certain campuses might have, but as an industry, they're not reducing the number of um, faculty members of graduate graduate students they accept. So they're not reducing the number of uh, master's and PhD students that they accept, uh, which tells me to a certain point that, um, and that actually leads to the other thing, it saves them money if they can hire a couple of part-time faculty members to teach courses, and then they don't have to pay any benefits and things like that. Um, and the fact that it's been going on for so long and you know, unlike law schools, which had to eventually start accepting fewer applicants because there were so many out-of-work lawyers, um, the universities haven't done that. Uh, and you have to kind of ask why. And I would put out there, and I'm sorry if this sounds harsh, uh, it's because the underemployment of faculty members is a feature, not a bug. Um, if they didn't have this glut of us there, uh, they wouldn't be able to do this. And that actually leads me to another question is if universities are accepting a lot of graduate students, they're not decreasing that and potentially putting out more and more incredibly qualified people who can take these positions, uh, is that glut, do you think, going to be better or worse for the job market in the future? Because it seems like there will be a lot of people on the market who are probably carrying student loan debt, who would like to put their education to work as soon as possible. Uh, and as you said, like 70% of the, the people that get hired are not going tenure track. So what do you think is going to happen with this glut of graduates that's coming in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Um, well, I can't speak outside of the Modern Language Association, but I know that one of the things that's really happening within the MLA is we are starting to, uh, and actually this has been going on for a while, um, uh, getting students, graduate students, to start thinking about what we call alt-ac careers, so alternate academic careers, uh, taking those doctorates and going outside of academia, outside of teaching, because when they're recent graduates, they have more options. It's a lot easier, and I'm not saying that it's 100% easy, but it's it's a lot easier for someone who has just finished to school to kind of go out and find other jobs and things like that, um, and they have more options. Uh, someone who has, who is in their 40s or their 50s and has been teaching for a long time, they don't have those kinds of options. So what I, th I think we're going to start to see is some of these students leaving. And that's going to be a loss for academia. It's going to be a loss for students. Um, but it's hard to justify advocating that a student stay in an industry when they graduate that is continually progressing towards doing less and exploiting their workforce more. And for the longevity of somebody's career, if they go 
and become like contingent faculty? Is that something that people stick around with for or, or stay with for a decade, two decades, like the traditional vision of a professor? Or do they have a, a shorter half-life on their academic career? You know, it's the thing that, that it's hard to kind of put any, that's kind of hard to quantify is just how much someone who goes into teaching loves to teach. Mm. Um, I am frustrated by my work situation, but I love teaching. I teach writing. I consider that to be incredibly important. It empowers people. Anybody who wants to go into management needs to be a strong writer. And I am qualified and skilled to teach them how to do it. And I love going to work. And um, that, I think, keeps people around. But I don't think that's going to continue to be the case uh, because there's too much information out there now. So a recent graduate is going to have to decide, do I want to invest in that? Uh, those of us who've been doing it for a long time, you know, we're looking for ways to change. I got involved with MLA for that reason. I wanted to have a voice and find out what I could do. But I think the younger graduates that are coming out, they're probably going to just start looking for different types of career paths. Mm-hmm. And as part of MLA, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because y'all are not uh, a union, as it were, but there's a lot of unionization drives happening at the university level, not just amongst uh, employees, but amongst graduates and um, and even faculty on some level. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the crossover between the advocacy work y'all are doing at MLA and sort of the union drives that we're seeing and whether that might be a way to sort of bring some more protections to these contingent uh, faculty members. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, uh, especially in some of the things I'm about to say, um, you know, MLA is not a uh, union. Um, we're sort of about like, you know, providing information, you know, research guidance, things like that, uh, or what's called kind of a learned society. Um, but unions are also an interesting thing, but they're they have their own complications uh, with regards to contingency because um, there's kind of two different ways that you can go. Uh, sometimes you can, and and I should be clear, I teach at three different schools. I'm in a union at one of them. The other two don't have unions. So that's also complicated. Um, yeah, that's a little but you have, Yeah, it is very strange. Uh, but you have this sort of uh, one model where you have one union that represents all the faculty, the tenure, um, the tenure track, and also the contingency. Uh, the challenge with that sort of model is often the contingent faculty are the ones that are sacrificed because they're not teaching as many classes. They're not um, as much of the sort of life of the union and of the campus. Uh, you know, if I teach at three different schools, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time with union activities at one of those schools. Uh, so they often, you know, at the end of the day, when compromises have to be made, they end up sort of compromising, you know, and the contingent faculty lose things. The other one that I actually find very interesting, although it's strange, is that you're having unions like the Steelworkers Association and uh, unions like that, that are starting to recognize that contingent faculty have a lot more in common with some of the campus employees, like, you know, people who work in the cafeterias and things like that, uh, with regard to what our job situation is and the sorts of things that we need. And and so you're starting to see some of those unions represent contingent faculty. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but the fact that, you know, contingent faculty often teach at multiple universities, they are generally full-time. They're just not full-time at one school, complicates the ability of unions uh, 
to really make as much change as I think we'd like them to make and they would like to make for us. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an, an interesting point because uh, we've talked about the dangers of this form of employment to uh, educators. But what about for students? Are students seeing uh, any downside risk when they have uh, when they're at a university that has more contingent faculty? Like are graduation rates affected? Are student participation rates affected? Like what does it look like from an on the ground view from like sitting in a student's desk? Absolutely. And um, I'll, I'll give you kind of like a general statistic, then I'll talk about some of the like the actual things that are happening. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to be clear that this is one study percentage. There are other, there's other people that have kind of looked into it and they've found that um, community college students, uh, so this is often where students are taking their core courses. Um, and this is also where uh, about 50% of the instructors are part-time. Uh, community college students' chances of graduating or transferring to a four-year college is diminished when they have more part-time faculty. Um, The study that I was looking at showed that it dropped by 1%. So graduation transfer rates dropped by 1% for every 10% rise in the number of courses taught by part-time faculty. Now, there are some quibbling to do about, like, you know, whether that percentage is, you know, fully accurate, it needs to be looked at, but the reality of it is it does harm them. And it's not because part-time faculty are worse teachers. It's because we have to split our time. Um, if I have to finish a class and rush out and um, they call us freeway flyers because we will finish our last class at one campus, rush out, get on the freeway, head to the next class, uh, prepping, I can't be as available to students as I would like to be. Um, If I'm having to kind of grade work from like, you know, more than, you know, if if an average uh, community college uh, instructor is teaching five classes, but if a contingent faculty person to pay, to to make up for the loss of benefits and the lower pay has to teach like six or seven classes, uh, they're teaching more. Um, So, you know, you end up having to not give as much to students as we'd like. Um, and if we had full-time employment, the other thing you have to realize is we're constantly looking for work. That's another sort of part-time job of the contingent faculty member because you have to constantly live as if you're going to lose one of your jobs. Um, and that takes up time. And all of that takes away from attention. The other thing is, is a lot of contingent faculty, uh, you know, they don't have established office spaces. So they might have shared office spaces, things like that. Um, So the ability to even sit down and meet with a student uh, is diminished. Um, And all of that has, you know, it has to hurt the student um, because we rely on that. We rely as as a student, I relied on being able to go to my professors and know that they would be there during certain periods of time because they worked on campus full time. And that's just not the case anymore. And this is uh, leading me into kind of a larger national political discussion. So far, like, we have, you know, everyone and their mother has thrown in on the Democratic primary so far. Uh, and a lot of them are in favor of free college for all plans, whether it's community college or four-year university at, a, at public universities. Uh, that seems like it's going to require a lot more faculty. Do you think that that's something that's going to increase the pressure on contingent faculties? And if so, what are the risks that we should be wary about when we talk about these free college for all plans? 
Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, first, I want to say that I am for uh, free college programs. I think that uh, just as we have uh, public school K through 12, I think that the first two years of college, so your community college, uh, that that should be part of, you know, uh, a student's education. And then I, I believe that the debt sort of, you know, on students should be reduced and things like that. But the important thing to remember is that unless you tie in this free college grant money to having faculty members, you know, who are full-time, who are adequately compensated, then you are going to continue to see faculty who are exploited in order to provide these free college programs. And I don't think that's something that, um, you know, progressive politicians have in mind. I just don't think they realize it. The thing that, the thing that I think is, is really encouraging about free college is if done right, there is this ability to tie in the grant money for free college programs to certain things that would reduce the, the this reliance on this sort of gig economy for faculty. Um, you know, if state and, you know, federal programs required schools that accepted money for free college programs to limit their contingent faculty positions to less than 30%, if it required them to ensure that all developmental and GE writing and math courses were taught by full-time tenure-track faculty, if it required them to compensate part-time faculty uh, who are hired by the per course um, proportional to what a full-time person would earn, um, if it required them to give so if it required them to give part-time faculty um, partial payment of their health insurance, uh, you know, at a level that is commensurate with what's, uh, you know, available on uh, the, the healthcare marketplace, if it required all of those things, then you would start to see a change because schools put money where they have to. And they don't put money where they don't have to. And for a long time, they've been told that you can, you can basically... Um, not pay faculty what they're worth uh, so that you can save money for other things. Um, and we just have this amazing opportunity to make them change. That makes a lot of sense. Though you did for a second kind of scare me when you said the gig economy for faculty because I just had this vision of somebody sitting in an administrator's office with a phone app and just like, I need an English professor. And then, you know, like door dashing and you <laughs> just have faculty sitting on phones waiting for the call to show up at a university. And Uber for teachers oh, sounds no. terrible. Oh, no, someone must be designing that as we speak. Oh, that would be horrific. But it's exactly. not that far from that, you know? It's like, mm -hmm. I need someone to teach that class. Uh, you know, find me someone. And I know even in today's, um, you know, academic environment, uh, like I have a family member who's a philosophy professor, and he's moved across the country three times searching for um, steady employment. Is this something... Like it's something we've seen this this sort of um, uncertainty existing for pretty much every level of faculty. Do you think that the best way to fix that is by going after administrators, by organizing teachers, by talking to policymakers? Like where are the points of articulation that that you all are trying to build power? Um, you know, I think it has to be all of those things. Uh, I don't think there's one, if there was a magic button that we could push, we'd have pushed it already. Uh, and part of the problem is, you know, there's no one administrator in most schools that has the authority to just unilaterally uh, 
pay all contingent faculty or convert all contingent faculties. It's more complicated than that. Unfortunately, that's often made used as an excuse to not do anything. Um, so uh, one of the things that we sort of work on, and in fact, uh, the committee that I'm on, we were discussing this, uh, this idea of talking to administrators about things that they can do without any change to their, you know, structure and their power structure, like what sorts of things they can do. Um, but then and also, you know, I'm a big advocate of organized labor. It's like it's it's what we often use to hold employers to account and force them to meet certain requirements. But I don't think that would work alone. Um, I think one of one of the things that I personally think would work really well is if we could get, uh, you know, Politic, politicians, legislators, political candidates, um, everyone who's talking about free college to simultaneously talk about the plight of contingent faculty. Um, if they tied that in, uh, if they constantly raised it, uh, which is another thing that I think would be great is if schools, you know, if free college programs required schools who accepted their, you know, grant money and their, their tax money uh, to tell students which faculty are part-time, which faculty are not. And I will say that's a um, controversial thing. It's not something that every uh, advocate for contingents believes because they feel like it, it separates people. But I personally feel like if students understood that the school was taking their tuition and yet shorting them in certain ways, then the schools would be less emboldened to do it. But I do want to acknowledge that not everybody feels that way. Uh, they feel like to tell students that would be to somehow signal that their instructors are less than they are. Um, and, and I want to acknowledge that that is a fair concern. Um, I just tend to balancing them, and it's also because I'm in the most precarious place as far as employment, um, I tend to think, like, you might as well go for it. <laughs> <laughs> That that makes a lot of sense. I, I was hoping uh, as we pivot towards the end here, you could talk a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, with MLA, uh, how people can get involved with that and how people who aren't in like the humanities or modern languages uh, sort of sphere uh, can also look for some solidarity and power building in their own disciplines. Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked that because I um – you know, I joined the MLA uh, out of frustration. Well, actually, I had joined the MLA and I went to a conference and I was really frustrated because I wasn't seeing myself anywhere. Um, I was seeing discussions about contingency, but it was typically uh, with people on the more stable end. And I don't want to say that that they are getting a fair deal, but from my perspective, they seemed more stable. They had multi-year contracts. Uh, sometimes you even had administrators talking about contingent faculty issues. And I was frustrated. So... I, you know, next time I saw a, an email coming out saying, like, do you want to volunteer for MLA committees? I put my name in. And what I discovered was the people who join these committees who volunteer their time, and it's not a lot of time, um, you know, I basically had to give up a couple of days, uh, you know, for my first committee, uh, one that I was on before, I had to give up a couple of days uh, in June and then a couple of days in January to sort of, you know, uh, talk about different things. And we got to shape the message that was being delivered to people. So we were able to do some really interesting things. Like um, one of the things I was excited to work on while I was on my previous committee, the MLA uh, Committee on Contingent Labor in the Profession, we 
uh, MLA already had this guidelines for how non-tenure track faculty, how they suggested they be, um, you know, treated. And it was kind of a, a best case scenario. Well, we were able to come up with a list that was uh, things that we defined as exploitative, you know, on their face. Canceling a contingent faculty's, you know, uh, course you know, a short period of time before the start of the semester and not compensating them, things like that. And MLA put that in their online, um, you know, journal, the profession. Uh, we were able to go to uh, the conventions and because the committees often determine what some of these panels are, we were able to have, you know, the first time that I had seen one, and it's possible that they were there before I joined, uh, you know, panels that were focused on just-in-time faculty. Um, we had someone else come in uh, who, like me, also teaches online. And so we were able to have a panel that focused on the issues related to online faculty who have a whole set of situations. As bad as the face-to-face -face issues are, online faculty uh, have this thing called um, uh, responsibility creep where they're just constantly asked to take on more and more and more. And because it's online and it's invisible, um, it, you know, nobody's really questioning it. So what I would say is, even if you're not in the humanities, uh, if you, whatever field you are in, there is what's called a learned society that supports you. So if you join it, and more importantly, if you start volunteering, you're going to get a chance to have your issues heard. Um, and I think it is so important because, um, you know, if, if no one's in the room to explain what it's like, then how can, you know, how can these societies like the Modern Language Association possibly understand what to advocate for? Yeah, and I think it, it, for uh, academic employment and, and, you know, being a, a faculty member at universities, it seems very opaque from the outside. Like, it's hard to understand how those employment systems work, how people move up. Uh, what would your advice be to graduate students and folks who are, you know, pursuing their master's and their PhD and thinking about going into teaching at a university level? Um, and, it, you know, what good advice would you have for them? And is there any hope for them salvaging their academic career? Um. And I want to say that, you know, as, as a person, I feel some like personal hope about things that can change, but I would not advocate that a graduate at this moment think about uh, that they that they go into, uh, you know, higher ed teaching unless they are prepared to live on a low salary. Because if only three out of every 10, you know, uh, faculty members gets a tenure track position, and there's no guarantee if you get a tenure track position, you're going to get tenure, but let's just assume that three out of 10, um, I don't think, and that that number is continuing to dissolve. So the fact that it's three out of 10 now, it could be two out of 10 in a couple of years. Um, and when you have a, a new graduate, they have this opportunity to jump into another field, um, and I really think at this point, I would have to advocate that students um, go for that as opposed to staying in uh, academia. And I hate that I say that because nobody goes and earns a PhD if they don't love education, if they don't love the subject that they're teaching, if they don't enjoy teaching. Um, but how can I, in good conscience, advocate that someone go into a field where they're going to be making less for much of their career than the students that they're training? 
Um, I just don't feel like I can say that to someone. And I hope that it'll change. Um, I'd love to see it change. But right now it is what it is and there's no indication right now that it's changing. That that I think is a pretty good note to, to end on. I want to say if there is a hope for change, it's going to be coming out of the work that y'all are doing over at the MLA and the other learned societies are doing uh, because I think you are the strongest advocates right now for your own profession uh, because we don't see a lot of that coming from boards of regents or from administrators. Um, and it's good to know that there are dedicated, motivated people who want to be teaching and see uh, the the need to preserve this profession and give people this hope, but at the same time uh, want to advocate strongly for the rights of, of workers in the sense and the rights of faculty members. Uh, so I want to say thank you for that work and thank you very much for joining us today. Did you have any uh, last words of, of wisdom or hope that you wanted to leave us with? Um, well, I did want to say thank you. And part of my hope is, is stuff like this. Uh, people are starting to finally be interested. Um, and I find that really encouraging. But the other thing I want to do is acknowledge that there are a lot of people out there working for the rights of contingent faculty in a lot of different fields. And these are people who work, uh, you know, not because they're being paid to do it. Um, you know, they work because they feel you know, as passionately, even more passionately than I do about these issues. So um, one thing I would say to someone who's listening who is contingent faculty, you are so not alone. There are a lot of us out there that really feel strongly about speaking up for you. And, um, you know, uh, and if there's some hope to be had, I think it's there. Um, it's amazing to talk to people who talk about the different areas, like the new faculty majority and places like that that are advocating specifically for contingent faculty. So I do think there is there is cause for hope. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for the, the struggle that y'all are engaging in. And I look forward to seeing the work that y'all do in the coming years. Okay, thank you. 